Blog Talk Radio. Let's get lost in a better place. Pick up a book, travel through time and space. So much to learn, so much to see. A chance to escape reality. Open your mind and your heart. What a fresh new song MJ Network will bring you there This is Fran Lewis. This is MJ Network, MJ in memory of my sister, Marcia Joyce, and we have author M.B. Lewis here, and his book is, um, is it the Palat or Palate Scroll that you pronounce the, the, the Pilot Scroll. It? Pilot Scroll. I wasn't sure the, because there's no one over there. Pilot Scroll. That's what I thought. This book is so fantastic. Kay Jenkins is a survivor, now part of an elite group of scholars and scientists. Their mission is to stop an impending global terrorist threat. We hope they do. But when a colleague is murdered in Egypt, Katie finds herself pitted against a form more terrifying than the one that they were trying to stop. So she teams up with one of my favorite characters, her younger brother, and a renegade pilot who's really cute. And we'll find out what happens when we talk to the author. So good morning and welcome to MJ Network. And this book was one of my favorites so far. Well, thank you. It's great to be here, and I'm glad to hear that. That's great news. Yeah, it is, because um, in next month I get to pick, I do whatever I want, because I think if Kirkus could do it, Just Reviews could do whatever she wants to, I get to pick my picks for the 2022 first six months. So the summary, how did you create the first scene? I felt so bad for Sam. And why let the readers think that ISIS was behind what happened? Well, the first scene, you know, when you write a book, the thought process for the author really kind of has to be, you know, you you want to catch them in the very first, you know, page, the first paragraph, the first sentence. And what I wanted to do with this story being an action adventure, I wanted to capture the reader with the first sentence, you know, which is um, Samuel Jacobson thought he was a dead man. At least he thought so. So that instantly creates a question as, well, why, why does he think he's a dead man? So the whole idea is to keep the reader turning the page. And uh, the scene starts off with Katie and her brother in a restaurant uh, waiting for a friend to, to show up to join them. But she gets this text message immediately from Samuel, and uh, she gets up to leave and drags her brother out. And they're uh, – basically rushing back to the hotel uh, to speak with Samuel because he's basically told her, hey, I've discovered what we're really searching for. And so now she has a question that she needs answered in addition to why does he think this information is going to make him be a dead man? So who is Sam? Tell us some more about him. I felt so so Samuel's bad. part of the team. Yeah, Samuel's part of this team that's uh, been organized. The team is uh, called the Global Disease Initiative, GDI. Mm-hmm. And uh, they've been brought together. Um, they're part of a larger corporate structure, but they've been uh, 
brought together to search for the cure to an ancient disease uh, that they believe is in this region of the world. So Samuel is part of the team, and he is basically a carbon dating specialist. So his job is when, when they find what they're looking for, his job is to analyze it and determine whether or not uh, it's from this time frame so that could possibly be what it is that they're looking for. So each person on this team mm. has a different specialty. Katie is a linguist specialty, and she specializes in uh, reading uh, Aramaic and other ancient languages. So, you know, everybody has a certain type of role, but they've been all been, and this is just one team of several that spread out throughout the Middle East and Europe. That that's amazing. That's what kind of research did you have to do in order to read that in order to create this book? Uh, well, I did a lot of uh, different types of research. The book was basically inspired um, back in 2018. My wife and I were on a tour of the Holy Land uh, in Israel, and uh, it's it just fascinating to to walk through uh, Israel and Jerusalem and, and and experience those places you read about in the Bible. It's like living it in 4D. And, uh, you know, I turned to my wife at some point and I said, you know, there's a book in here somewhere. I've just got to find mm. it. And uh, I, I never really found it. It kind of found me. And I, I couldn't tell you when and where it was that the idea for the book hit me. But when it hit me, it came fast mm. and furious. Uh this was the fastest first draft I'd ever written. I, I wrote the first draft in about three months. And then, uh, you know, the book was completed within a year. And uh, it was just a great experience writing it. And, and you know, some of the places that are in the book are, are places that I've actually been to, um, mm. some of the things I've actually experienced. And then a lot of things I just, you know, you, you do the research uh, on the Internet or wherever it is that you need to do the research. And, uh, you know, the story just kind of comes together. And sometimes I'd be at a, at a stopping point, and I'm like, well, why can't I figure out what to do here? And then all of a sudden, boom, something pops up and is like, ah, problem solved. I wish I could do that. Um, that, that, that is, that is great. A, lot of, a lot of authors just say all of a sudden, in the middle of the night, I come up with an idea and get up and start typing. You, you just never yes. know. But this, this is, right. you know, yeah. I, I think I've read close to, since doing this, my sister before she died forced me to do this. Um, I think since I must have read thousands of books. Seriously, I know for between mm-hmm. January and now, between January and May, I've read about fifty. That's a that's a low mm-hmm. ball number. <laughs> Don't ask me how. Yeah, yeah, it's scary, and I, I just it's amazing. But this this was different because you know how many murder mysteries I read? Too many. So when I, when I read about the Hunter virus, which I do know about, I said like, oh my God, this is different. So Katie, I like her. How does she handle? And tell mm-hmm. us about Brian and how you created his character. What I really liked is that you included somebody with a disability, which really makes it you know even better. Yeah, uh, and you know the interesting thing is I can't remember at what point where I decided. Uh, to create the character Brian. And Brian's a character that has Down syndrome. Yeah. But I do know, um, before I ever even started the first draft, I have a, 
a friend of mine from high school that has a son that is Down syndrome. So uh, I reached out to him and I said, hey, this is what I'm thinking of doing. And uh, and I kind of sent him an outline and I said, you know, I want to make sure that, you know, that I'm not really kind of just using the character, you know, uh, for the story. I mean, the character is actually a significant part of the story. And if you remove him, the story changes completely. So uh, I sent him the outline and he says, yeah, this sounds like it's going to work. And uh, and he gave me some great advice throughout the process. And uh, and actually, I mean, every draft along the way, I sent it to him. He'd say, well, maybe change this because this is how a down person would, you know, act or react mm-hmm. and and things like that. And, uh, you know, just all the way through the final product, he was just a great help. And then uh, I also reached out to the National Down Syndrome Society, and they uh, mm-hmm. actually – you know, they won't endorse anything, but they gave me some great tips and information just to make it, you know, a better, well-rounded character. So that well, was Well, I knew you experience. got it right. I worked in a, well, I worked so many. Well, I was an educator for 36 years and worked with all sorts of students, but I worked part-time in a bowling center, and there were a group of mm-hmm. kids that came in with Down syndrome that were there. And right. my ex, my ex assistant principal's son had Down syndrome too, and they're very bright, extremely bright mm-hmm. kids. So people, you know, misunderstand. And that the fact that you included Brian, that he is so smart, made it even better. So who is Kurt, yeah. and why is he so attached to Katie? So Kurt is the security um, man mm. for the Global Disease Initiative team there. So his job is basically to kind of keep everybody safe and uh, out there in the Middle East. And uh, he's attached to Katie basically because, you know, they're both, they're two young people. Katie's in her uh, early to mid-20s. Kurt's, you know, early 30s. So, of course, you know, the, there's that romance aspect there mm-hmm. that uh, he's, kind of trying to court her and she's kind of deciding, well, do I like this guy or do I not? And she's kind of working mm. through those issues there. Well, you have to be careful. So what a, uh, yes, why did you did. pick the hunter virus? And why did they, how it, I know that there's no cure for it, but basically um, there's like an anti antivirus, you know, antitoxin, whatever. But, what, why did you pick that, and how do they claim that they wanted to cure it? And if they're going to find the cure, where were they going to find it? And, and how is so that spread? The, so with the hantavirus, uh, it's spread by rodents, and, and it's basically a hemorrhagic fever that can result in a renal failure. And, um, you know, sometimes the illness can last from weeks to months, and uh, sometimes it can be fatal. So in mm. this story, what's happened is uh, – you know, this uh, organization has been contacted by the uh, CIA and said, hey, ISIS has figured out a way to weaponize the hantavirus, and their goal is to spread it throughout, you know, Western culture to basically, you know, shut down the hospitals. And, and ironically, this was, you know, written before the COVID uh, situation happened mm-hmm. in the world. And we kind of seen what's happened when the you have the logjam in the hospitals. You know, society basically starts to shut down. So that's basically the goal uh, with this thing. It's kind of a passive, 
uh, war on Western culture by ISIS. They want to spread this hantavirus. So that's what they're told. So uh, they've also, the organization's been told that uh, in ancient times, there was a, they call the old world hantavirus that has basically similar effects that affected uh, parts of Africa and parts of Europe and the Mediterranean, but it never really impacted Israel and the area around that. So that's where the concept of they're searching for an ancient cure in this mm. region, and that's why they're there. That's scary. So tell us about Mac and Dugan. When Kurt is around, why do they not feel you know, they Kurt seems on the edge and you know, it's very closer to Katie. What is what is it what is not right about those two? So Mac and Duke uh, uh are the two pilots that uh as the GDI team is trying to escape from uh Egypt, these guys are flying in an airplane uh, to fly them out. And uh they basically are are part of a uh, contractor organization that's over in Iraq uh, doing work there for the government. And they on their way back to the United States, and they've been diverted in to, to pick up these folks and uh, fly them to Istanbul. So uh, basically, um, in the book, Kurt has told Katie that he is a, a Delta Force commando. Mm. And uh, when Katie tells this to Duke, Duke, of course, starts to chuckle because he knows that any guy from Delta Force is not going to call himself a Delta Force commando. Mm. So that's where Duke starts to get suspicious of, I don't think this guy is really who he says he is. And Mac, who is his uh, partner, he's an older uh, partner and really more of a mentor to Duke. Um, You know, he says, uh, yeah, I think you may be right. So this is a guy they're going to kind of keep their eye on to figure out who exactly he is. Well, that's that's scary. So, is ISIS is all around the hotels? They, they're so scary. It's 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 horrible. So, if ISIS isn't around, how come they keep changing locations? And they're very hard to stop, aren't they? Well, yeah. You know, it's uh, like any terrorist organization. You don't really, you know, know who you're dealing with. It's a faceless enemy. Um, yeah. In this particular case, um, you know, they're uh, at the hotel in Port Said doing their research, looking for their uh, cure. And, uh, you know, they they have the run-in, and that's where they um, – Kurt tells the team that they have to leave the hotel in the middle of the night, and uh, they start heading south to an airport to get picked up by the team. So uh, – that's kind of the trigger that that kind of sets this whole thing in motion. So what exactly was she supposed to find? And tell us the significance of the four vases, and why is the aromatic one the most significant? Well, it's – I don't know if I should go too deep into that because that may kind of spoil some of the – Don't give uh, any spoilers, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, but again, it's – what – what the vase is, obviously the pilot scroll, that's the title. So there's something significant about that. And, uh, you know, the scroll is obviously kept in a vase. And uh, uh, the vase just has Aramaic writing on it. So it's just kind of referred to as the Aramaic vase. 
Now, this thought was interesting. (laughs) Mm -hmm. This is interesting. Isaac, what does he tell them about the vase, and how does he link it to somebody that we all know from history, Pontius Pilate, and the Pilate's glow? Yeah, Isaac, and and again, this is one of those parts that uh, is Mm -hmm. more interesting to the reader that I think that's when Mm -hmm. people probably really start get excited about the story. So I don't want to tell too much, but uh, Isaac is basically uh, Samuel's friend, and uh, he's a retired university professor, and uh, he just has a lot of information on uh, ancient culture and religion. And, uh, you know, he's kind of the wise man of the story. And uh, he's the guy that gives the information to Samuel about what they're really looking for and, uh, you know, how he uh, gives that information to uh, Katie and Duke is, uh, is kind of fun. Uh, probably better not say anything else. <laughs> no, I quest out the next question because I think it will give away too much information. So. Yeah. This was interesting. Why does Katie, a lot of people, question their faith? Why does she question her faith? And what happened in the past that causes her to lack her faith in God? I mean, you know, you get days where everybody does, where you say, why does this happen? Mm-hmm. What happened to God? Why, why wasn't he listening to me? And yet he's really listening to you, but sometimes you just say, well, how come this happened? So why did she lose her faith in God? We all get that way once in a while. We go like, why did this, how, why did this happen to me? Right. So what happened with Katie was, you know, she grew up in a, uh, in a Catholic home. And um, when she was very young, she had a very close relationship with her grandparents and they just uh, died at an early age, her grandparents. And that just kind of broke her heart. And then she had her little brother who was born with Down syndrome, and that Mm. confused her even more as a child. And then uh, when she was in college, her parents were killed in an automobile accident Mm. uh, her junior year in college. So that basically, she became the guardian of her younger brother. So just these events kind of made her lose faith in uh, in God and and just question things that were going on. And uh, she'd just kind of been away from it. For a long time the uh the interesting thing is and as you well probably know uh down people are very spiritual so mm-hmm. brian has kept his faith the entire time and he's always gone to sunday school and church and you know he's praying every day and he's very religious but katie just really doesn't have anything to do with it she's just focused on getting through the, each day I know how she felt when my sister died because it was questionable. And mm-hmm. nobody really knows. Yeah, she had a heart attack, but no, her husband forgot to call 911 for 27 minutes. So there's like a question mark in there, too. And I'm saying, like, how come that happened? It's, I'm still saying it for 12 years. So ISIS mm-hmm. is trying to weaponize the hantavirus, but how are they going to do that? They want to they you know, capitalize on it. That's even scarier. Yeah, well, we kind of touched on that uh, a little while ago. Um, yeah. You know, they're basically, it's going to be uh, placed in uh, bombs that are releasing aerosol spray into the uh, atmosphere and just spread out throughout different locations in uh, the Western culture. That's the plan that the CIA has told GDI. Wow. 
So explain the importance of the Dead Sea Scrolls and how did you create the museum scenes? Museums are some of my favorite places. Mm-hmm. So um, this is one of the neat things about the research. Um, you know, that scene that you're talking about takes place in the uh, Israeli Museum uh, mm-hmm. that's in Jerusalem, and, and that's one of the locations that we went when we were there. And uh, there's an actual large uh, display of ancient uh, Jerusalem there. And, uh, you know, one of the scenes takes place there. And then uh, they go inside to talk to Isaac. And the the scene in there with the Dead Sea Scrolls, um, you know, if you've been in this place, uh, they used to have the actual Dead Sea Scrolls on display and I can't remember how long ago it was, but somebody actually tried to to destroy them in there that, that came into the museum. So the actual Dead Sea Scrolls had been uh, removed and put in a secure location, and they have a, a replica in there now. So when you when you go in there, see it, it's not the actual Dead Sea Scrolls, but it's basically oh. a, a photograph. But um, it, it's kind of interesting you know, because the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in Qumran, you know, the southern portion of uh, Israel. And mm. um, it kind of parallels, you know, what uh, the Pilate Scroll is. It, it's a scroll that's been placed in a jar, and the Dead Sea Scrolls, of course, were found in jars in the caves. So uh, that wasn't intentional. I just kind of realized after the fact, it was like, oh, well, that's kind of an interesting parallel. So I'll cross out the next question because I don't want to give away too much. But what is the treasure that the scroll has to is linked to? Um, if I kind of answer that, that kind of gives away some of the other stuff. Okay, but, so we'll uh, go to the next. We'll just yeah. say that. Well, I can say there there's a treasure that's associated with it, but I'm not going to say why or how. But that kind of. Uh, the, uh, that kind of gives us a more of a reason why there's a corporate interest in what's going on there. Mm-hmm. So when you did this, what is fact and what is fiction? Which part is fact and which part is fiction? Because there was so um, much of it that right. I, I, I tell you, I learned a lot of reading this. And, of course, looking up some of the stuff that you looked up, I said I knew it was accurate. But that's just me. That's just the educator in me <laughs> trying to make sure that what I'm reading is – because there, you have no idea how many times I'll read a book and I'm going like, you've got to be kidding. That's all wrong. I don't want to tell the yeah. author. I'll just say, yeah, you're still all wrong. So what kind of research did well, you do? Well, again, I, I – uh, I wanted to make sure that everything was historically accurate, but uh, mm-hmm. everything in there is, is historically accurate except the pilot scroll, which is fiction. There is no real pilot really? scroll. That's all. Too bad. That's all made up. <laughs> <laughs> and so why did you pick well, Pontius Pilate? Why, why him? <laughs> well, again, um, you know, um, He's a very unique character, and, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, this is a man basically that condemned Jesus to die, and, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, what what an interesting concept if the man that convinced uh, Jesus to die actually saw Jesus after he was resurrected. Would that change the Mm -hmm. course of history or not? (laughs) Kind of a fascinating concept. It is. The aromatic vase is at the heart of this novel, right? So, where does Katie think it is? 
without telling anybody where it well, is. Well, of course, uh, throughout the uh, the story, they uh, there's various clues and things that uh, they're using to try to track this down. And uh, and Katie has a lot of experience in this and background, and um, she has an idea of where she thinks it is. But of course, nobody you know the the head of the GDI isn't listening to her because she's mm-hmm. kind of got this focus she's doing, and and they think it's in one location. And and Katie turns to Duke and says, uh, "I don't think it's there. I think it's here." And of course, they ignore. Her. And, um, mm. you know, they come to find out they need to start listening to her a little bit more because she is an expert, and that's why she's there. So I'm trying to remember something because I read this book a while ago and thought I had it pretty memorized. Um, in this book, did somebody actually plant the hunter virus? Yes. Did somebody get it? I'm sorry, yeah. You cut out there. I didn't get the question. Did somebody actually plant the hunter virus? Did somebody actually get it in this book? I'm trying to remember no, that. No, and actually, no. And and this is really a cover story for the creation of the team to get the team together to look for the scroll. Yeah. That's what I thought. So how do we know that Kirk and Duke are at odds and that one is dangerous? And they better stay away from Katie. Yeah, there's a um, there's some things that Kurt does slowly but surely, and and like we talked about earlier, Duke and Mac are are kind of watching this guy, and and then finally they say, mm-hmm. look, let's make a call downrange and talk to our buddies in Delta that are in theater, and uh, and ask if they've ever heard of this guy, and uh, that's kind of how they uh, they do that, and uh, and then uh, Kurt, you know, gradually begins to show his colors. Uh, through the story to the point they get there and they're mm. like, all right, this guy is this guy's a problem. Now that 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 is dangerous. Now Katie is a very strong character. She's not a wimpy person, but he tries to strong on her. How does she deal with him? Because he's basically supposed to keep her safe, but we know that it's not everybody's who they appear to be. So how does she deal right. with that? And uh, and she's kind of dealing with it, you know. In the beginning, there's that initial romantic interest, right? So she thinks, well, mm-hmm. this is a, a good guy, and, and I'm kind of debating whether I like him. And, you know, and she asked Brian at some point, what do you think of Kurt? And he's like, eh, he's okay. And, uh, you know, Down syndrome uh, folks have a really good judge of character. So she mm-hmm. knows that. So she's saying, well, what is he seeing that I'm not seeing, and why doesn't he say anything to me? And, uh, you know, as Kurt kind of starts to reveal himself, she's kind of initially in the state of denial, but then she, you know, and then Duke comes along and Duke's saying, look, we don't think this guy who he says he is. And uh, of course she's thinking, oh, okay, now he's just trying to compete with Kurt. So she thinks there's this macho uh, battle going between these two guys to win her over. And then she gradually realizes that, oh no, okay, Kurt is not a good guy. That's not good. Especially he's supposed to keep you safe. It's hard because mm-hmm. sometimes you get blindsided and you don't want to believe sure. that the people that are supposed to be close to you I really want you dead. Not very nice man, yeah. what can I say? So how did you I choose agree. the many locations in this book? And and by the way, I have to tell you, I told one of my physicians I don't have to go see him but I'm not allowed to come without books. 
seriously. Uh-huh. Yeah, my, my, my dermatologist's <laughs> wife is very loves me forever. So when I go visit him on Thursday just to bring him books, yours is going to be in the pile with him. He already told me because oh, he loves stuff. Yeah, he loves stuff like that, historical stuff, stuff that with intelligence. And he says to me, I'm the only one of his patients that he talks to because no one else reads. So he's getting it on Thursday. So how many locations did you pick? Um, There's several different locations. Uh, We start off in Port Said, Egypt. Um, And really before Mm -hmm. that, the the team had already been in Cairo, and they've been looking for there. They didn't find anything in Cairo, so they moved to Port Said. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's kind of on the border of the Suez Canal there in in northern Egypt. And... um, you know, the next thing you know, they find themselves in Jerusalem. Uh, the main part of the team is in Istanbul, so eventually they get up to there. Then they find themselves into Venice and uh, and ultimately in Serbia. And, uh, yeah, there's just uh, there's specific reasons why each location. I don't want to give them out too much. No, uh, no. Because of the, you know, of what takes place in the book. But uh, I, I think it's a lot of fun. It's just a... Uh, you know, everything is logical as to why they move from one location to another, and it, you know, everything kind of mm-hmm. makes sense, and it's realistic in the timeline. So, the, you know, the locations were picked basically because they were uh, close enough together to be as realistically accessible, and and it fits into the story. Okay, now I'm looking at the book. The book is in front of me. So, what does Constantine have to do with this? So Constantine, uh, and that's another case of the research. I did a lot of research on yeah. Constantine, and 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 you know read a great book on him. And um, he is um, basically, uh, without spoiling too much, let's just say mm-hmm. um, at one point he finds the scroll and he realizes the significance of it, and uh, he takes measures to make sure that. One, it's never destroyed, and two, it's ultimately found, mm. if we can say that. Okay. <laughs> and and there's, a, there's a lot of information in the book on Constantine as well, and, and it's all true except for the parts relating to the pilot scroll, which is a fictional item. Too bad. It would have been interesting if that yeah. was real. So why things, I know. How, do things get, how do things get out of control? And I'm leaving out the last part of that question. So how do things get out of control? Uh, in which context? Because a about lot of things Isaac. get out of control at different ports. Oh, about okay. Isaac. So, um, well, um, let's just say the uh, nefarious folks behind everything mm-hmm. finally found out who Isaac is. And, you know, they don't want the information that he knows getting out. So just like Samuel, um, you know, the bad guys kind of get their way. Okay, we're not going to tell. So there we go. (laughs) Now, why did they, Brian has to take medicine, so that got to be a dangerous situation too, poor Brian. Yeah, so the situation with Brian um, in addition to Down syndrome, he has a brain tumor. And uh, what he is is he has a cyst around his pituitary gland, and that's a grade 4 astrocytomous glioma. 
And uh, basically it's a, a brain tumor that can't be cured because it spreads mm. so fast through the brain tissue. Uh, it causes seizures and physical weakness. So he has a uh, seizure medication called Lamictal, and, uh, you know, he's brought that with him. And here's the situation. So Katie, knowing Brian's situation, you know, she's offered this job right out of uh, graduate school. And uh, mm-hmm. it's a, you know, six-figure job that she's con- she knows it's going to get her into her dream job, which is an associate professorship at Princeton when she gets done. But she refuses to go without Brian because he's going to die within the year. And she knows that. And she's not going to spend another minute, you know, without him. She's not going to leave him at home and go off to to the Middle East on this trip. So uh, the company says, yeah, we'll send him and he'll be part of the team. And, you know, we'll put you guys up in a suite everywhere we stay and all this. So they make her a deal that's too good to be true. And uh, so he comes with her and he's got his medication. Uh, that he brings with him as well. Mm. I love Brian. You've got to bring him back. Seriously. Yeah, he's great, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. You know, like I said, when you're bringing a child with learning with disabilities, and he proves to be somebody, you don't make him pathetic. You make him smart. That makes it, the book even more credible. So I don't like Patricia. Mm-hmm. Why is she such a horrible person? Well, she's uh, she's one of those. Uh, well, I don't want to stereotype her, but she's um, she's been the lady that's been trying to fight her way to break that glass ceiling in the corporate structure, and uh, and that's really all she's focused on. And uh, she thinks she's doing good, but you know her actions kind of prove otherwise. You know, she's really out to get herself, you know, to do what she's trying to do for herself. Without mm. any uh, real care for anybody else. There are a lot of people like that in the world, and it's really scary. They're supposed to be doing Indeed. good, and they're really not. So before I forget, this week is a big one, people. I'm doing three. I'm doing three till the end of October every week. So tomorrow, somebody we all know and love, the Matthew Goldberg, Vanish Me. On the 26th, Eleanor Kearns, Murder, Sweet Murder, and on the 31st, a very interesting title, Death Warrant. <laughs> and on the 2nd, Serpent's Doom. On the 7th, somebody we all know and love, Don Bentley, Zero Hour, the new Tom Clancy. Oh, you got to read it. It's fantastic. And on the 9th, the author of the Craig Page books. And Kelly Cameron's back with Alan Topol. That's just some. And I have to brag, on the 27th, Tess Gerenson, listen to me. She's great. So that's just part of what's coming up, not even close to all of it. So what did Isaac tell Duke to look for, and why did he share it, and what are they going to do? Well, we kind of touched on that earlier. Um, Mm. Isaac basically tells Duke to look for what's called the Legend of the Three, and uh, he kind of explains what that mm. is. I don't want to spoil again. There's, you know, part of the fun of this book is all the puzzles and things I got to solve. It, mm. It's been kind of described to me as, you know, uh, Indiana Jones meets God's Not Dead meets the Da Vinci Code meets National mm. Treasure, and, and there's probably a little bit of all of those in this book. It's, it's, it's a lot of fun. It is a lot of fun because I got eye strain reading it. I read it in two hours, people. 
No, really. Oh, my goodness. It doesn't happen too often where I just sit down and read a book and just say, okay, I'm not going to stop reading it. But your book had an extra thing. The font wasn't one inches, one whatever. A lot of the fonts in the yes. book that I'm getting, because publishing companies are trying to save paper. So they're publishing books mm-hmm. with fonts. And then what I have to do is I have to take them to my friend over in FedEx and ask them to reprint it for me. And they will. But it's that's a lot of money. But sometimes I have to think I didn't have to mm-hmm. do it with this one. So tell us how they find the parchment and what is the significance and what do they learn. But we're not going to talk about the message. <clears throat> that's kind of a tough one to answer. Um, okay, so we'll change obviously, that question. Obviously, yeah. Yeah, okay. How did you how did you create? Well, this we have a couple of people on the line listening, and one of them just texted me and said, um, but "How does well Duke is going to help Brian? We're going to get to that in a minute. How did you create the initial plot, and what is your writing process? This, this listener would like to know. Do you have an outline? Did you just come up with it? Do you just do what I do and just sit down and write and pray it comes out right?" How do you create what you're writing? Because your writing is so unique and different. Well, what I like to do is I I like to know where I'm starting and know where I'm going to finish. So if I got those two things worked out, then uh, then it's the middle step, the where all the fun takes place, right? So that's kind of how I work it out. And this is kind of an interesting book because um, – you know, I, I had written some stuff, and, and the hard part for this book for me was was mm. figuring out the puzzles that they would solve to to get to where they need to be. And uh, I was fortunate enough, and, and, you know, it just basically through Internet research uh, is where I kind of stumbled across each of the puzzles and the mm. formats that they come out to to solve this. But uh, I'm a I'm a big outliner. I believe in that. But I don't, you know, mm-hmm. necessarily adhere to it. Sometimes, you know, and you know, as a writer, you know, if you've got a very solid outline, all of a sudden your characters are taking you in a different place as you're writing, and you, you know, you just follow it, and uh, usually it works out pretty good. Well, my problem is, uh, maybe you could explain how you do it so well. When I was reading your book, the dialogue um, is fantastic. And I, I I have trouble writing dialogue, so I write everything in first person from the dead person's point mm-hmm. of view or whatever, or from somebody telling something that happened. But how do you create a dialogue that doesn't seem fake or false, that, you know, you can actually feel that the people are talking to each other? Well, it, it kind of goes back to the characters, I think. You need to kind of know, you know, what's the background of the characters, where are they from, you know, and that kind of gives you an idea of, you know, you may have a character that's, you know, from a certain region of the country that, mm-hmm. you know, maybe they're more forceful when they talk or, mm-hmm. you know, if they're from the South, maybe they're more laid back and, and, and things like that. So the biggest thing is you don't want to try to, uh, you don't want to try to, like if you have a Southern person, you don't want to spell out every draw that they do. You yeah, know, you might I know. want to do the first. You might do it the first time to show, okay, they got a southern twang. But when you write out everything, um, that's kind of a problem. And uh, that's one of the things when I dealt with the Down Syndrome Society that they, mm. they pointed out because initially I had Brian, you know, having a bunch of. Uh, 
R's in his word when maybe there was a, a L or something like that. And, uh, and they said, you know, he wouldn't necessarily be that way all the time and, and it may not portray him that good. So I kind of, you know, and I even mentioned it early in the story, he doesn't do it as bad as he used to. So just rarely throughout the book, I would, I would plug that in there to show that there's a slight speech impediment, but nothing that's, uh, you know, abnormally uh, blatant. Well, you didn't stereotype him, which is good. And like I said, I've worked with yeah. kids with Down syndrome, and you couldn't tell. I mean, sometimes you just didn't even know. Just because you look at their face, you can tell. But basically, sometimes mm-hmm. if you don't listen to it, you just close your eyes, you wouldn't know. And that's how smart they yeah, are. Yeah, exactly. So what yeah. does Katie learn about herself? What does she learn about herself as a result of this whole, uh, uh, what, she, what she goes through? Well, she, uh, you know, she eventually learns that uh, she's been wrong about her faith, her lack of faith. Um, and the interesting thing about this book, and, and this is the first Christian-based book that I've written, and uh, I don't know if I got advice or I found out about it later, but, you know, a lot of books like uh, that have a Christian theme to it, you know, the, the climax is the character decides to become a Christian. Well, that's, mm. you know, okay, that's kind of cliche, right? Now, she realizes what she is and wants to become a Christian, but that's not the climax of the story. That's just an element of it. So, um, you know, she has, she has her character arc where she changes throughout the book, and I think all the characters do uh, a little bit. Um, you know, mm. there's there's always that little change from the beginning of the book to the end of the book. So, Mm -hmm. um, and that's kind of what she experiences. And, and also, you know, probably she needs to not be quite as trusting as she is. She's, you know, she put Mm -hmm. a lot of trust and faith in Duke and, or not Mm -hmm. Duke, rather Kurt. And, uh, that didn't work out so well for her. And she initially wasn't a big fan of Duke, you know, but, uh, she realized that, uh, Hey, this guy is really a really good guy. This is this is very true, but you know sometimes you just don't know. It takes time to get to know people. I, I have a problem mm-hmm. because I either I either like you or don't like you when I look at you. So I can tell right away. It's scary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my, my, well, I'm, I'm perceptive like my grandmother was, and my grandmother would say, <laughs> "What do you think?" And I would say to her, "What do you think?" And at the same time, we go, and she would say it in Jewish, she would like, "Not not good." And I go to her, "You got that one right." But yeah, you have to be careful in this world. So Duke, why does he take a special liking to Brian? I mean, I love Brian. Yeah, I think it's just uh, you know his his faith, and uh, he he looks at Brian as a person and not as you know as probably a lot of people incorrectly look at, at down people as uh, mm-hmm. people with a handicap, you know. And it's you know it's not a handicap; he's just different. My nephew is autistic, and you would never know it. I mean, if you mm-hmm. talk to C, I call him CW, and C, you wouldn't even know it. Um, it's like amazing because people automatically stereotype a kid with autism as oh, he talks too fast, he doesn't understand, he's not going to process. That's not always true. So, how do we bring this back to the Hunter virus? Where does it come into play throughout the end? Does it come back? 
Uh, no, it does not, because uh, you know, obviously, the hantavirus is uh, is uh, a mechanism that uh, the GDI basically used to bring all yeah. these experts together to look for the scroll. So, what what can we learn about ourselves? What can we learn about believing in ourselves and faith? I mean, because so many people, you know, something happens, and like I said, my, my sister died out of nowhere. Um, any, anything could happen like that. And you all of a sudden you say, mm-hmm. well, what happened? I, I, why, why should I believe in, in God? Why should I believe in anything? And yet you have to believe in yourself and not give up. Right. So how do we, how do we change our mindset about that when something bad happens or when something good happens, you say, see, thank God. You automatically realize it. Mm-hmm. You don't can't take it. You can't take the advantage of it. You can't just consider that. Oh well, you know it's going to happen all the time. So how do how do we learn about ourselves and our faith? How do we change our change our belief or stay say or stay believe, believing in ourselves? Well, uh, you know, I've always kind of said that uh, you know you have to believe in yourself or or nobody else will, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, one of the things that I address in the book is, you know, from Hebrews 11.1, 1, which is, you know, it explains faith. And that kind of, uh, I think, gives people a way to look at it. And that's faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance mm. of what we cannot see. And, uh, you know, hopefully that, you know, you can have that faith to get you through those tough times, kind of like you talked about. And, um, you know, God's there for us and, uh, mm. and it's a gift and it's a matter of, do we want to accept that gift and, and, and make our lives better or not? Mm. Well, sometimes I'll, you know, like the other day I looked up at the sky and I said to my sister, Marsha Joyce, can you help me fix this problem? And, you know, sometimes you feel like they answer you. And all of a sudden, I said mm-hmm. to my husband, I said, you know, I got to chill. I think she heard me. <laughs> or um, <laughs> there was a bad storm last night. My sister always said she controlled the weather. I believe her after a while. And it was a really bad storm mm-hmm. last night. And I said, would you mind knocking off the rain? And it stopped about 10 minutes later. I go like, are you kidding me? So you, you just you just, yeah. you just never know. Yeah. You have to have faith in yourself. You're right. Otherwise, who's going to believe in you? But you have to have faith in other people, too. And you can't. You don't want to mistrust the world. That makes it even harder. Exactly. When somebody like it, like Katie finds out, when somebody like crosses you, you know, you're going to be more careful next time. So where do you exactly. see her next? Where do you see her next? Uh, I see what she's going to do is uh, uh, eventually she's, move, uh, she's moving forward. And um, I think she's probably going to uh, become an author. And uh, we're going to explore her and Duke's relationship in uh, in the future. So there's going to be an exhalation of their whatever, hopefully. That would be good. Well, we're, we're just going to explore everybody uh, in, in the near future. So. <laughs> yeah, well, you don't want to make it go too fast because when these romance things go too fast and they wind up in the wrong direction, I get like, oh, God, I, I just skip right over it. When they exactly. when they go too romantic and too whatever, I, I basically I don't read it because it's it's yeah. annoying and I'm saying like I don't need to read all this. I I can you know watch a movie and see the same thing. 
So the other thing is, go. how did you create the, the letters, the noble excellency? How did you create all these letters that she received? As Katie unrolled the lengthy scroll to a point where she could read the entire message, how did you create, without telling, how did you create that message? Yeah, so the message that's uh, on the scroll, and even the other message, some of the clues that are in there, you know, obviously you've got to create uh, something that, that expresses what you want to say. But the tricky yeah. part is, how is it actually going to be written? And, um, and believe it or not, I was able to find um, mm. some copies of Roman uh, letters mm. from that period and, and read the interpretations of them. And interestingly, the interpretations, you know, as read, were kind of written as we talk today, you know. Um, one of my beta readers, one of his first comments was exactly on the message. And he, he says, it maybe needs to kind of sound like this, you know, and, and it was the old, kind of like old English, you know, ye and thee and now and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And I was like, no, no, no. Look, I researched this and, and that's not how they wrote. So uh, that was really kind of interesting. That probably would have turned me off too. Because it, this, the way you wrote the letters and stuff, when, when just regular English was much better. And the fact mm-hmm. that you use italics let me know that there was something different coming within within the right. book. So without right. saying anything, how did you create the fantastic, unique surprise ending? We're not going to tell anybody what it is. Are we talking about the climax or the mm. epilogue? The epilogue. Forget it. We're not going to tell them the climb of the epilogue, especially I can't say what the the last line like really got me. Let me tell you. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, you know, it just I think it was a culmination of the story. You kind of get to the point where, yeah, this just totally makes sense, and mm-hmm. um, you know, it's biblically based, and you're just like, wow, this this just really works, and um, it, yeah. I, I, I love the ending, I got to say. And there was actually more to it at one point. And, uh, and my beta reader that I just talked about actually says, you know, I, there's a section in here and I, I, I don't think you need it. You can take it out and it'll actually make this ending a lot better. And he was right. It was a, it's just a, a really good biblically based and, uh, Great ending. Well, the next one um, that you're writing, is it going to be a biblically based also on the Christian fiction? Uh, it is. And, uh, okay, good. I have the, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's going to be, uh, I want to say more of the same, but I don't know how much of the same it's going to be. But it, it's, uh, yeah, it's going to be the same kind of thing. So before we end, Okay, your book just went in the pile to be delivered on Thursday, everybody. Um, what is it? What is besides this? Is there something else next for you with, besides the sequel? And where can we find out about um, your book so everybody can buy it? Because I said so. Okay. Um, well, I I have another book that's a secular series that's uh, military aviation, and uh, oh, nice. there's five books in that series, and. Um, I have a fully outlined uh, conclusion book for that series that uh, I haven't put out yet. I actually 
I put that one on hold to do the pilot scroll because the pilot scroll just kind of hit me. And it's one of those things I felt like God was talking to me and, and I needed to get this out there. And, uh, and God was talking to me and he was right. I needed to get it out there. And I think it's, uh, it's turned out really well, but, uh, I have that book lined up. I'm working on the sequel for uh, the pilot scroll. And, um, right now my main duty is I'm playing grandpa. I got a new grandson. So I'm, I've oh, kind of nice. hit a little operational pause, and I'm enjoying being a grandpa and uh, taking care of that. Well, I have to say this because you, you brought that up, and I have to. My nephew's going to probably kill me, but so what? Um, on May 17th, my nephew turned 25, Josh, and he's my financial mm-hmm. genius in my family. Yeah, so we're, we're so proud of him, and um, I'm an aunt. I'm number one aunt in the family, the coolest aunt in the family. There you go. Not a grandparent. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm the one that when they have to write an essay, they call me. I'm the one there that if go. there's a problem, problem that needs to be solved, don't ask your parents. Just ask your aunt. She'll figure it out. Because for me, you're going to get a straight answer. <laughs> I always said to them, and you're probably yeah. going to say the same thing, if you don't want, an answer, want the answer, don't ask the question. So what's his name? Oh, my grandson? Yeah. Ah, James. Oh, nice. So that's so nice playing. You know what? That that's so special. But this has been yeah, great. And where can, we, where can everybody find all of your books, both of them? Okay, so uh, the, all the books are available on uh, Amazon. Um, and in fact, I was just looking on the website a little while ago. The the hardbacks uh, on sale for forty seven percent off. So it's like I don't know, less than sixteen dollars for the hardback. The uh, ebook goes on sale, uh, I think, in seven minutes. Um, it's 8 a.m. Pacific time, so I think that's seven minutes from now uh, to 99 cents for three days. So. Yeah, I'm finding that Amazon did that to Population sale. Zero too. Yeah, they keep lowering prices. I don't know why. Do you you don't tell them to, or yeah. they're just doing it? No, we have no control over the price of the hardback. So. Um, yeah, mm. if you want a hardback at a good price, now's the time to go get it. Well, my book was fifteen dollars, population zero, seventy six pages. Now it's three eighty five. Mm-hmm. So wow. maybe they'll, yeah, maybe they'll actually have more people buying it. Who knows? But I want to thank you so much. This has been great. And um, are you going to do another tour with Partners in Crime when the next one comes out? Oh, Gina definitely. Told. Yeah. Uh, they do such They'll great work. They're fantastic. Gina is super. They are so super. And what I really love about them is they appreciate the fact that I do this. And they're keeping, oh, me, yeah. extreme, they're keeping me extremely busy, I'll tell you that. <laughs> and it's worth it. Yeah, Every single book is, is its quality, thank God. And I can tell you, the, uh, the relationship they have with the authors uh, before and during and after the tours is just fantastic. They just... They stay on top of it so much and keep you so well informed on, on what's taking place. And, you know, sometimes, you know, a host out there is not going to be able to post your, your thing. And they yeah, let you know. know right away, hey, this is this is happening. And it's just they make it so easy. So I highly recommend it for any authors out there that are thinking about doing a virtual book tour. Uh, yeah, that's the way to go. Good. Partners in Crime, Gene and Teens. They, they keep on it. As a matter of fact, unfortunately, two weeks ago, one of the author's wife had COVID, and they told me like that morning. I felt so bad. I actually moved him to another date mm-hmm. because it's not his fault. And 
I don't yeah. mind. You know, I understand if there's an emergency or something. It's just that when you get an author that says to you, I'm not in the mood to do this today, well, too bad. What can I say? But thank you right. so very much. This has been great. It's very educational. Those of you that didn't read the pilot scroll, it's now's a good time to get it. Everybody, it's a beautiful day outside. Have a great day and bye. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.